Welcome to the Lead On Podcast. This is Jeff Orge, the president of Gateway Seminary, talking with you once again about practical issues related to ministry leadership. Uh, Last week on the podcast, I started on this theme of breaking out of the Christian subculture. And this week, I want to follow up with a second podcast on that, talking uh, in some more specific ways this time about how you as a leader can make the choice uh, to break out of the Christian subculture and become much more significantly involved with infiltrating your community with the gospel. Now, just quick review, if you didn't hear the podcast last week, I talked about um, three broad approaches or three broad categories of strategies for reaching people today, attraction, engagement, and infiltration strategies. And while we said all three have value and their synergy when they work together, uh, I observed that attraction and engagement strategies are becoming less and less adequate for reaching into the vast uh, community networks of lost people all around us and that we have to couple those with infiltration strategies. Um, And then we talked last week about why that's so hard for so many and it's really an issue of control at its root. Uh, You have to give up some control when you go into the community with the gospel and really engage people on their turf on their terms and yet uh, it's so worth it because in that context, when you see people come to faith in Christ, uh, it's, a, it's a powerful, uh, powerful experience, not only for the person whose life is being changed, but for you who was the vehicle by which it happened. So today, I want to shift from that introductory summary to talk about uh, what are some barriers that we face when we try to move toward, a more, toward an infiltration lifestyle, uh, maybe what are a few of the benefits, and then some steps that you can take personally Uh, to move in that direction. So first of all, what are some barriers to an infiltration lifestyle of going into the culture with the gospel? Well, well, the first one is what I call fear of the culture. Uh, We're just afraid. We're afraid of what people will do to us, what they will say about us. We're afraid of opposition. We're afraid of resistance. Uh, We're just afraid. And sometimes some aspects of those fears are warranted. But my overwhelming experience with going into the culture with the gospel is that people are not resistant. They are not uh, uh, angry. They are not frustrated. They are not mean-spirited. When you go into uh, a community on their turf, on their terms, uh, with their their best interest uh, at, at heart, so to speak, you will be surprised at the positive reception that you will receive. Another barrier is anger with the culture. Uh, there are things in our culture that really do make, make some of us angry. We, we're anger, angry about sinful behavior being rewarded. We're angry about um, uh, evil things happening in our communities that are seemingly uh, supported by people in power. We're just angry. And when you move into the culture, if people feel that you, that you have an anger or a superiority perspective or that you're somehow judgmental toward them, uh, it will not, uh, it will not be a recept- you will not find receptivity uh, for the gospel through your witness. Another barrier is uh, it has some legitimacy. It's what I call concerns about compromise. You know, as, as Christian leaders, we, we are concerned uh, that we not compromise our faith or compromise our integrity or, or compromise our position, and, and I certainly understand that. Um, but I want to remind you that, that your uh, reputation is not necessarily something that has to be guarded at all costs. It's the gospel that has to be guarded at all costs. 
And so while we're never going to compromise the gospel, we have to be careful that we don't use concerns over compromise as a smokescreen, if you will, to keep us from going out there and doing what we can to get the gospel to people. And this concerns over compromise relates to a fourth barrier, and that is what I call behavioral expectations that people have for Christian leaders. Um, you know, it's, it, it's real. People, especially church people, uh, do have expectations of how Christian leaders are supposed to act. Uh, we have a friend, for example, uh, in the Asian community who was a pastor's wife for many years. Her husband retired, and the next time we saw her, she had some stylish jeans on with holes in the knees. And uh, she said to my wife, who's her very close friend, how do you like my jeans? And Ann said, well, they're, they're nice, you know. And she said, I would have never worn anything like this when I was a pastor's wife, but as soon as my husband retired, I went out and bought them. And so that just underscores that, that people do have certain expectations for those of us who are in ministry leadership. Um, I have a friend, for example, who says, well, I will never be seen in public with anyone consuming an alcoholic beverage. He said, I don't want anyone taking a picture of that or in any way associating me with a person using alcohol because people might mistakenly think that I was the one using the alcohol. Okay, I understand that, and, I, and that's his position, and I get that. But that illustrates, again, um, the, the, the expectations people have about us. But if you're going to infiltrate culture with the gospel, you're going to have to do some hard, hard thinking about uh, what of these expectations you're really willing to honor as other people put them on you and what parts of these expectations you're, you're just simply not. And don't, don't be a person who says, well, I'm just going to throw off everything. Nobody's going to have any expectations controlling me. I'm going to do whatever I want and they can just get over it. Uh, that's immature and it certainly is unwise. You know, as a, as a seminary president, everywhere I go, everything I say, all, everything I do, I, I represent Gateway Seminary and I have to always remember that. And so I, always, I do have to weigh out some of the expectations people have of me in this role and what I'm able to do and willing to do in terms of being engaged in the community, infiltrating others with the gospel, uh, infiltrating uh, communities with the gospel. So, for example, when I was working in baseball chapel, I frequently uh, had meals with players or with other people associated with the organization in which alcohol was consumed. Um, didn't have a problem with that. Uh, that my expectation is that I will not consume alcohol, and the expectation of the people I work with is that I will not consume alcohol, but that's not an expectation that I have of people who are not even Christians and who certainly don't share any perspective I have on that subject. And so if I was going to go out with them for a meal, I would always assume that it was going to include alcohol, and that was just a problem I had to work through. Now, I would also say that I, I had to say to players, uh, there were some places that I just couldn't go with them for a meal. You know, there are certain kinds of establishments and certain kind of restaurants that I, I just didn't feel it was appropriate for, for me to go. Now, I was fortunate in that uh, most of the guys I worked with understood that, and in fact, they were, they were actually more sensitive about it than I was sometimes, saying, hey, are you sure, and is this going to work, and can we make this happen? Uh, and frankly, not once in 10 years was it ever an issue that I couldn't go somewhere and that kept me from being able to be with a player who uh, was willing to have a social uh, night out with me. It just, it just wasn't an issue because they, re they also understood some of these expectations and were willing to work with me on them. So all I'm simply saying is that there are these barriers to infiltrating culture with the gospel. 
uh, fear of the culture, anger with the culture, concerns over compromise, which are sometimes legitimate, and that leads into this other is issue, which is behavioral expectations other people have of us and how we have to navigate those when we go into culture with the gospel. But there are also some theological barriers. Uh, there are some things that we believe wrongly, I think, that keep us from being willing to infiltrate culture. The first one is we have a diminished understanding of the power of service to impact the lives of people around us and to gain entree for the gospel. Now, we reject something called social gospel, and we certainly reject uh, any idea that says serving others in Jesus' name is the gospel. But we, in rejecting those two things, social gospel and service as gospel, in rejecting those things, we can also lose sight of the reality that the greatest among you is the servant of all. And when you go into culture and you genuinely serve people by trying to meet their needs on their terms, in their context, when you go there and do that, you have the, it gains you great credibility and because of that gains you opportunity to share the gospel. So don't diminish the power of service and, uh, and embrace the theological reality that service does demonstrate greatness and service does gain entree for the gospel. Another theological barrier is the wrong definition of church. When we focus the church definition too much on the, si on the institutional side and not on the organic side, uh, we lose sight of this reality. For example, I have to confess, when I first started out in pastoral ministry, I measured the success of my church by how many people came on Sunday. And I measured the success of the church by, um, by how much money was given. And I looked at those institutional markers to determine the relative merit or relative health of our church. Now, don't misunderstand me. Those institutional markers are important. You should know how many people are coming to your church. And uh, you should know how much money is being given, and you should keep up with those numbers, and you should use those numbers in, uh, as part of your planning. But there are also other numbers to measure, and that, that is how many people in your church are in the community infiltrating with the gospel. How many people in your church came to faith in Christ and ultimately were baptized, not by some program that your church organized, but by your members infiltrating the community, sharing the gospel, and bringing people back uh, in relationship to, to uh, the church through that means. Uh, for example, one church, a suburban church with a lot of sports families in it, decided that it would organize a uh, monthly uh, prayer meeting and uh, training meeting for everyone involved in youth sports that wanted to use it as a platform for infiltrating the community with the gospel. In other words, if you were a coach or an official or a team mom or anything like that, um, you could come to this meeting. And they had a couple of dozen people show up for the first meeting. And so they prayed for, trained, and motivated people uh, not to join a church program or join a church sports league, but to go back into the community more effectively and infiltrate with the gospel. And so... Uh, that meant that those people would not be coming to weeknight church activities because they'd be coaching, working, and developing relationships in weeknight youth sports programs. And so that church learned to count its success not by how many people came to its programs in the building, but by how many people were deployed in the community uh, with the gospel. And so a wrong definition of church puts, you, puts too much emphasis on the institutional measurement and not enough on the organic measurements of what the church life is really like. Another theological barrier is a wrong definition of discipleship. I again have to confess this. 
When I first started out in pastoral ministry, I measured the church's discipleship impact by how many people came to the discipleship program, how many people participated in the discipleship classes, how many certificates we handed out for the completion of the discipleship workbook. And I want to underscore, classes, programs, and workbooks are helpful. But the measure of discipleship is not how many people complete the program, it's how much life transformation takes place. And that's much more difficult to assess. Believe me, I work at a school, I know this. It's much easier to count how many people came to your class at seminary. It's much harder to assess how much did they learn and how much were their lives changed. But nevertheless, a right definition of discipleship focuses on transformation and on measuring life change, not just on gathering people for programs. And then finally, another theological barrier is the wrong definition of commitment. A commitment in the Bible is obedience, not legalism. Commitment is not coming up to an artificial set of rules that you've enacted or that you've created. Commitment is obeying the Word of God and obeying the impulses of the Spirit as it prompts us to fulfill and do what the Word of God teaches. So, these theological barriers can also hold us back. So, how do you... uh, fix this? Well, uh, we're going to do that by these three things. First, you have to change your thinking in order to overcome the barriers I've just covered. Now, this may involve some internal struggle. As I've said, I started out in ministry thinking that the way that you defined church, discipleship, and commitment, that way you define those things was uh, by how many people came to your church, how many people participated in your programs, and how many people checked off your boxes of the structure that you'd put in place to prove that they were genuine Christians. It required a change of thinking on my part that involved some internal struggle. I had to go through an upheaval of letting my theology reshape my thinking, and then my thinking reshape my behavior, and that was more uncomfortable than perhaps you might know. If you've known me for a long time, uh, you know, you've known me only as I am now. You don't know what it was like in my early 20s when I was going through this upheaval of thinking about what it meant to take the gospel into community. So it may involve some internal struggle to change your thinking. It may also involve some relational conflict. You know, not everyone in your church may agree with you when you start changing your perspective. Not, not everyone will agree that the church should be infiltrating community with the gospel. Some people are much more comfortable with attraction and engagement models. That's what they've been taught. That's what they've always done. That's what they think that the church should do. And that's what they definitely think church leaders should do. I'm sure that there are people who've uh, quietly criticized me for investing so much time in the baseball community over the years. They've wondered, why aren't you preaching more sermons in churches? Why aren't you speaking at more conferences? Why aren't you writing more books? Why aren't you doing more Christian things to help the Christian community? Well, that kind of relational struggle may happen to you as you start making this life change. Church members, church leaders may not all understand what you're trying to accomplish. And this may result in misunderstanding and criticism. Uh, You may uh, be attacked on Twitter. You may find yourself the object of some blogs. You may have people uh, coming to you personally and saying they just don't like the direction you're going. Uh, Brace yourself. Uh, You may have not only internal struggle but relational struggle, and all of that may result in some real tension, some real heartache, some real conflict, and some real criticism of what you're trying to do. 
But changing your thinking is the first step toward overcoming these barriers that are keeping you from engaging the culture or from infiltrating the culture with the gospel. You change your thinking by Bible study, by reading, by reflecting, by having conversation with other Christians, uh, maybe by listening to this podcast. But as your thinking changes, uh, your behavior will start to change and go through the struggle that's required to make that happen. A second thing that you have to do is decide to adjust your schedule. Now, I call this transactional planning. In other words, it's really simple. Every time something goes on your schedule, something else has to go off. Now, don't think that you can take an already jam-packed schedule that's totally immersed in the Christian subculture and add on top of that time that you're going to spend infiltrating culture with the gospel. You can't do it. You're going to have to do some transactional planning and some transactional scheduling. What's going to come on what means that some things have to go off. Again, I go back to illustrate uh, during those time, the time when I was with the Giants. When I committed to be the chaplain for the Giants, I committed to about 15 weekends a year working with the ball club. Now, that sometimes meant the whole weekend, but other times it just meant Sundays, and so I could still try to schedule some kind of Christian event on the Friday, Saturday, if it were close enough that I could still get back and be at the ballpark on Sundays. But nevertheless... For 10 years, I blocked out about 15 weekends a year. Now, uh, that meant that I had to say no to a lot of things. You know, I probably receive 150 speaking invitations a year, something like that, and I'm able to take at the most a third of those, and lots of years, not even that many. And so I, I in, when I was working with the Giants, had to take even fewer opportunities, and I had to be more selective about what I did and what I didn't do. Uh, but transactional scheduling means what goes on the schedule means other things have to go off the schedule. And so if you're going to find yourself really going into the community on their turf, on their terms, you're going to put yourself there not for a day or for a week, but you're going to make an investment that will mean that you'll be there for the next few years building relationships, sharing the gospel, and seeing people's lives transformed. That means you're going to have to eliminate some other things from your schedule. And not only do you have to do this personally, but um, as you lead perhaps your church to be more committed to an infiltration approach, you may have to do this with your church schedule as well. You know, when we planted the church in Oregon, I came from a church at that time, as most churches did at that time, at least most Southern Baptist churches, that had a Sunday morning service, a Sunday night service, and a Wednesday night service. And then on top of that, I was challenging people to go out on visitation events or to involve themselves in the community or to share the gospel. And quite honestly, my best leaders in our church were so busy coming to church stuff, there was no possible way they were going to be involved in or engaged in the community on top of all of that. So when I moved to plant the church, I knew that I wanted to have a different kind of schedule that actually uh, accommodated this infiltration approach that we were trying to take uh, as, as a church to reaching into our community. Now I want to underscore what I said last week on the podcast. Our church also did attraction and engagement strategies. We weren't just doing infiltration, but we wanted to bring some kind of balance to this church scheduling issue so that we had time to challenge our best people, our most effective Christians, to be in the communities with the gospel, in their communities with the gospel. And so our church decided that we would have Sunday morning service every Sunday, Sunday night service once a month, and no regularly scheduled weeknight activities. 
Now, that didn't mean we didn't have weeknight activities. We would have seasonal ones where we might go six weeks or eight weeks or maybe a semester, but we didn't have something that went on all year round all the time that people had to commit to. Now, this kind of scheduling uh, was challenging for some of the people who were early, early members of our church that came from church or Christian backgrounds. One woman particularly made a comment that's resonated with me all these years. Uh, she had grown up in a Southern Baptist pastor's home. She had loved church since she was a little girl. She'd never rebelled or anything like that. Uh, she went uh, from high school uh, into college, met a man, got uh, who himself was a committed Christian. They got married, they joined a church, and all their lives, uh, that had been their pattern. So they wanted to be a part of our church plant. In fact, they were an integral part of it at the, when it started. And when I challenged them with this new schedule, uh, they adopted it, but it was harder for them than they thought it would be, and it was certainly um, harder for them than I realized. And after our church had been going for about a year, this woman uh, stopped me one day and said, hey, I, I want to tell you something. Uh, that God has been working in my life over this past year. Okay, sure. She said, I'm going to church less than I've ever gone in my lifetime. And I thought, oh boy, this is going to be a negative conversation. I don't know where she's going with this, but it doesn't sound good. <laughs> she said, I'm going to church less than I've ever gone in my lifetime. And she kind of cocked her head and looked at me and smiled and said, but I'm doing more of what the church is supposed to be doing than I've ever done in my lifetime. Man, that was a sweet moment in my ministry and in my life because I realized that this person had come to understand that what they'd been doing in their past was not wrong, it was just out of balance. That they were so devoted to church activities and church programs and church participation that they didn't really even have time to be in the community building relationships and thereby and taking the gospel with them into those settings. And so that was a great conversation that really encouraged me uh, that our, our new church was getting it, that we were really having a better, a better approach, a more balanced approach to these evangelism or outreach strategies. So choose to change your thinking, decide to adjust your schedule, and then third, choose an affinity-based project or an affinity-based activity uh, to go into your community. Now, what do I mean? Well, by affinity, I mean something that lines up with who you are uh, in, in some significant ways. So let me give you three of those. First, you need to choose something that has an affinity with your interest. Now, of course, obviously, I've told you my baseball stories, but let me now tell you about Anne, my wife. Uh, my wife's interest uh, does not include that extensive commitment to the sports community. Oh, she went and participated because her kids were there, but that was never where her heart was. My wife has always been uh, significantly engaged in the public school system. She has always uh, worked all the time uh, that in Oregon and all the time uh, that we were having children in, uh, having our children go through school. My wife worked as a volunteer uh, in the public schools. Uh, she went every week and volunteered in the classrooms for our kids. Uh, and that led uh, into, into something more, and that is my wife um, became a volunteer coordinator for our grade school, and then when our children went to middle school, she became the volunteer coordinator for the middle school. Now, what that meant was my wife organized and recruited dozens and dozens of volunteers uh, to participate in our school um, and to be there on a continuing basis, and she managed all of that for the school as herself a volunteer. She was so good at this, I'll just brag on her a bit, she was so good at this that twice 
the school district offered her a paid position in the district office to train volunteer coordinators um, for all the schools in our district. Now, my wife, knowing her giftedness, realized that really wasn't what she wanted to do. Uh, she was already carrying more administrative load than she wanted just by being the volunteer coordinators for those local schools. What she really wanted to be was a volunteer in a classroom. But nevertheless, my wife had an affinity with an interest in education, which also spilled over into a second affinity, and that's affinity with your family. One of the reasons that I was heavily involved in youth sports at one time in my life, and I'm not now, is because my children were heavily involved in youth sports, and now my children are all adults, so we don't have that connection any longer. Same thing with my wife with the public schools. All through the years when our children were in school, she not only had that interest, but it coupled with our family, and so we were aligned in that regard. Quite honestly, this is one of the struggle points that we have right now. We don't have those natural connect points with our children that we had for all those years, and so that's what's made it, in some sense, more difficult for us since we moved to Southern California to know how to plug in to our community in a meaningful way to share the gospel. So you need an affinity with your interests. Mine, it was the sports community. My wife's, it was public education. An affinity with your family, meaning that it lines up with your family activities and family time. Our family, our children were already going to be going to practices and games and team events, and they were already going to be going to school, so it was just natural that my wife and I joined the community at those points where, where there was compatibility with our family. And then finally, you need affinity with your current leadership role. Um, if I were a local church pastor, uh, I would not have been able to work with the San Francisco Giants because they needed me on Sundays and weekends, and that's when pastors are needed in their congregations. But my role as a seminary president made it possible for me to be involved in that project. Um, and so you have to choose something that is has affinity with your leadership role. Now, while I'm advocating that every Christian leader break out of the Christian subculture and find a meaningful way to engage community and to share the gospel in community, I am not saying that you have to do that, that in order to do that, you should abdicate your Christian leadership responsibilities. Uh, you have a job. Uh, let's just put it bluntly. You're a pastor, you're a ministry leader, you're a youth pastor, you're a teacher. You have a responsibility that you have to fulfill it as your Christian leadership responsibility. Do not ignore that. Do not limit that. Uh, do not neglect that. However, find a way to manage that so that it's a, not the all-consuming part of your life that it may currently be, and instead you can have a part of life that is invested in community, sharing the gospel both for your own personal obedience to God and as a model for what you're trying to get uh, church people to do for you and with you. Well, there's so many benefits to this kind of life. This kind of uh, lifestyle has kept me connected with real people, helped me to understand the issues my church members or, ch or seminary uh, students are facing every day. It helps me to sharpen my teaching and preaching vocabulary so that I'm always learning how and better to speak the gospel to uh, regular everyday people. And frankly, it's just made me a happier Christian because I know I'm actually sharing the gospel with people and seeing lives transformed. And I'm on the front edge of that, not just administrating others who do it, not just preaching about others who need to do it, not just organizing programs to train people to do it, but out there actually getting it done. And because I've done that, I get a phone call like I got a few days ago from a man I led to Christ five years ago, and a few weeks after that, or really a few months after that, led his wife to faith in Christ, and then they've grown in the Lord for the last five years. Now they're writing a book about their story. You get that phone call because you make the decision, I'm not just going to do Christian things all day long as a Christian leader. I'm going to model, I'm going to demonstrate, and I'm going to invest myself 
in a community of unsaved people who are not yet Christians who need to hear the gospel and they're going to get it from me. You do this. It'll make you a better leader. It'll certainly demonstrate your obedience as a Christian and it'll give you a deep satisfaction as you lead on.